the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. He's just saying that if you have been born of God and you have his nature in you, you must practice righteousness, and you no longer will practice sin. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse as we dive into a new series of lessons today, mostly centered on the third chapter of First John. Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is going to show us the Bible's clear answer to a critically important question that some people think cannot be answered with any assurance. John told his readers toward the end of his letter, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. As we will see in the coming days, we can know whether or not we are saved from the penalty of sin. Here's Pastor Steve. I invite you to open your Bibles to John's first letter, 1 John. I want to read to you, starting at verse 28, all the way to chapter 3, verse 10. John writes, Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil." No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, what I've just read to you is one section. It comprises one section in the letter that John wrote, his first letter. As we continue our study of this letter, we have come to this new section in which John describes those who believe in Christ in a way that he has not said before. 
He speaks of us in a way he has not spoken of us before. Now, prior to this present passage, John has referred to believers by a number of expressions. For example, he has said in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that those who come to faith in Christ know him. We are those who know him. Chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So we are those who know him. Then in chapter 2, verse 5, we are called those who are in Christ. We have such a relationship that we are united to him. We are in him. Verse 5, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. So we are those who, who know him. We are those who are in him. In chapter 2, verse 9, we are told that we are those who are in the light. We are in the light. Verse 9, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. And then he says in verse 10, those who love their brother, they abide in the light. We are those who are in the light. In chapter 2, verse 24, we are told that we are those who abide in the Son and in the Father. Verse 24, as for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If that if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. But now, in this new section, John introduces us to another way of identifying those who are true believers. In the closing verses of chapter 2 and the opening verses of chapter 3, verses that I've just read to you, John mentions several times that those who believe in Jesus are the children of God. Sometimes he refers to us in this section as those who are born of God. At other times he calls us the children of God. Notice how often he speaks of this. Chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness, notice, is born of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Chapter 3, verse 2, he also refers to us as children of God. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says that we are those who are born of God. Chapter 3, verse 10, once again, he says that we are children of God. So that's one, that's one truth that is dominant in this section. He identifies believers as those who are born of God, the children of God. But that's not the only reoccurring thought in these verses. Notice how many times John declares that we who are the children of God practice righteousness as a lifestyle in our behavior. Chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of God. Chapter 3, verse 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Chapter 3, verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Chapter 3, verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, John says. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So John has introduced two thoughts here. He says that we are children of God, we are those who are born of God, and those who are born of God, he says, practice righteousness. 
But there's still one more repetitive thought that John brings into these verses. Notice that John mentions in this passage either the first or the second comings of Christ several times. Chapter 2, verse 28, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, that's his second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. That's the second coming. But chapter 3, verse 2, once again, the second coming. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not appeared as yet. Well, we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him. That's his second coming. But in verse 5, he speaks of his first coming. We know that he appeared in order to take away sins. He appeared what? The first time he came, the first time to deal with our sins. Chapter 3, verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared, meaning his first coming, for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So there are three reoccurring thoughts that run through this passage of Scripture. When we put this together, we can begin to understand what these verses are about. John's message in this passage, in his letter, is that those who are born of God, those who have become his children, have the life of God in him, so that it is inevitable, inevitable, that they practice righteousness and no longer practice sin. Now, he's not saying we no longer sin, and he's not saying our righteousness is perfect. He's just saying that if you have been born of God and you have his nature in you, you must practice righteousness and you no longer will practice sin like an unsaved person. But watch this. Not only is righteous behavior inevitable because we've been born again, and that is his point, but we who are his children, John tells us, are now motivated to live righteously because we understand the purpose for which Christ appeared the first time and is coming again the second time. In his first appearing, John tells us, he dealt with our sins upon the cross so that we would become new creatures in him. That's why he appeared, to deal with our sin. And it is in the hope of his second coming, which we've been studying about in Matthew's gospel, that motivates us to live a godly life because we know that when he comes, we will actually be in his presence. We want to live godly now, knowing that at some point we will be in his presence. So the basic message, when you put it all together, of these verses can be summed up in the succinct words of commentator John Stott, who wrote, unrighteous conduct is unthinkable in the Christian who has grasped the purpose of the two appearings of Christ. That's, that's really what this is about. I would just add to that, that not only in the Christian, but the Christian, because he's been born again, because he is a child of God. Unrighteous conduct, Stott says, is unthinkable in the Christian, and I'm adding the child of God, who has grasped the purpose of the two appearances of Christ. That's the basic message in this section. Now, as you'll recall, John wrote his letter for the express purpose of bringing assurance of salvation to his troubled readers who were struggling with knowing, are they really saved? He says at the end of this letter, chapter 5, verse 13, 
These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You have the Gnostics who were troubling these people saying you don't have eternal life. We have eternal life because knowledge is everything. We're the enlightened ones. We have this knowledge. You don't. You're not saved. You don't have eternal life. We do. So they were troubled. And now John, in order to minister to them, has set out to accomplish giving them assurance by presenting a series of tests test by which someone can examine his life and see if there is tangible evidence that he has come to faith in the Son of God. And John essentially gives three tests. The, the letter really is basically three types of tests, I should say, that John gives. He repeats these tests throughout his letter, and sometimes he adds a little bit, sometimes he approaches it from another angle, but he's always developing his thought, it seems, around these three tests. Test number one is moral behavior, how we behave. Do we behave in a way that evidences that we've been saved? In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he spoke of keeping his commandments. We have a desire to keep his commandments. That's the moral behavior test that John gives. The second test is the test of brotherly love. John keeps coming back to this. How do we demonstrate that we really know Christ? Well, we love fellow Christians. We love them as brothers and sisters in Christ. John says that, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the one who says he's in the light yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Now, John gives a third test. A third test is the test of orthodoxy, the test of sound doctrine. Do we know and believe the truth about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done for us, on the cross. And we actually studied that going through this, starting at chapter 2, verse 22, going to the present verses now. Actually, it was even, even before that. But basically, what John is, is saying here is that uh, the Gnostics deny Christ. They deny who he is, but we don't. We know the truth, and we know the truth because the Spirit of God lives in us and teaches us. We have an anointing from him, John has said, and we know the truth. So folks, these are the three basic recurring tests that John keeps applying throughout this letter because only true Christians, note this, only true Christians obey God, love his people, and know his truth. Nobody else. We obey God, we love his people, we know his truth. Now in the passage before us, which we'll just simply introduce, we see that John once again turns our attention upon the test of our moral behavior. He's already dealt with this, but now he's going to deal with it again by pointing out that those who have become God's children behave in a righteous manner. Now keep in mind, his purpose here is not to address the issues that we might have and we do have with ongoing uh, sin, struggles that we, that we all have because we're not perfected yet. But that's not John's point. So don't look for that here because you might read this and say, yeah, but I, but I struggle with sin. Um, John has already mentioned in chapter one that we do sin, but that's not his point here. Also, John is not dealing with the fact that there, there may be times of carnality in a believer's life, times where he lives in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord. That's true, but that's not John's point here. 
All of this is true, but we need to recognize that John has one thing and only one thing in mind, and that is to say that those who have really been born of God will behave as a way of life in a righteous manner. So as we make our way through these verses, and I said we're just going to introduce it, we see John basically saying the same thing in a number of different ways as he hammers home the truth that God's children do behave righteously. Now, tonight as we begin this adventure of making our way through this passage, we want to examine the verses that close chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And in these verses, we see John start to develop his theme that the children of God behave righteously by giving us one mark of a child of God, as that mark relates to righteous behavior. In the weeks to come, we're going to see several more marks that John gives, John says a child of God has as they relate to righteous behaviors. In introducing this passage, we see the first mark that John gives of a child of God is this. He tells us that a child of God practices righteousness. Verse 28, now little children, he writes, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, once again, John addresses his readers with a tenderness. He is their shepherd. He is perhaps their spiritual father. He, he has that tender heart towards them. He calls them his little children. He's done this before. This is John's way of saying that they are special to him. He loves them. He's their pastor, their spiritual father in the faith. And he commands these precious children of his to abide in him which means to continue in intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. The, the word abide literally in the Greek text means to continue or to remain or to stay. And so what John is telling them to do is to continue enjoying their fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Now, although John commands us to abide in Christ, the truth of the matter is that true believers already abide in Christ. Yes, it's a command here, but it's also a fact. We do abide in him. In fact, that's what he said back in chapter 2, verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So we do abide in him. We do continue in fellowship with him, and John is simply saying, do that. Now, from a practical standpoint, how is it? How, how, do, we, how do we do this? How do we actually abide in Christ? This is not rocket science. This is just basic Christianity. So let me tell you, we abide in him by continuing to experience intimate fellowship with him, which takes place as we continue believing and obeying and submitting to the truths of scripture, especially the truths about Christ himself. That is precisely what John has just finished telling his readers. Notice chapter 2, verse 25. This is the promise which he made to us eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. That is to say, the Spirit of God lives in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. You abide in him as the Spirit of God 
teaches and unfolds to you the truths of Christ. So we abide in him as the truth continues to dwell in us, specifically the truth that the Holy Spirit teaches us about Christ and the gospel. It all comes back to the word of God. You spend time in the word, you're obedient to the word, you speak to the Lord based on his word, you continue in fellowship with him. So true believers do abide in Christ because we do continue in fellowship with him. But now John gives us, note this, an extra motivation, an extra incentive for abiding in him. He writes, now little children, abide in him so that, here's the purpose, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. John tells us why it's so important that we abide in Christ. Because he says, only those who abide in Christ, who continue to have personal fellowship with him, will have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame when Jesus appears at his second coming. Now, what does John mean by this? Well, the Greek word that we translate for confidence is a very interesting word. It's actually a compound word consisting of two words put together. The two words are all and speech, all speech. And the thought behind this word is that of freedom of speech or a boldness, or you could even say a frankness, the freedom to speak. So what John is saying is that those who fellowship with Christ right now, you and I, if we're believers right now, fellowshipping with him, will be able to speak with him freely and confidently when he returns. In other words, we won't tremble with fear when Jesus comes back. Instead, we'll be free to speak to him because he's the one we've been fellowshipping with for years. We've talked to him all of these years. When he comes back, we're not going to be afraid. We've already experienced fellowship with him. He's our savior. He's taken away the penalty of our sin. We've been speaking to him freely all along. And so we know that when he comes, we can continue to speak to him freely. We have confidence. We'll be able to go boldly into his presence. That's what John is saying. You abide in him now, you will be confident to speak to him when he comes again. However, that is not the case with those who are not saved. It's not the case at all. John says that while those who abide in him will be able to boldly speak to Christ and not cower in his presence, why would we? We've already experienced fellowship with him. However, there will be those, he says, who will shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, there are some Bible teachers who think that John is referring here to believers who haven't lived for the Lord like they should have, and when Christ comes back, they're going to be ashamed of their behavior. They're going to be embarrassed to be in the Lord's presence and they're going to shrink away. Now, I'm sure that all of us, when Jesus comes back, will in some sense have regrets about the way we lived. We're not as committed as we should be. There's always room for growth. There's always room for more holiness and godliness. That's a given. That's a given. But I don't think that's what John is talking about here. That's a truism, but that's not what John is, is saying. And the reason I say that is because John's entire letter is a contrast between true Christians and false Christians. He is not making a contrast in this letter between strong believers who have been faithful to Christ and weak believers who have been vacillating 
and unfaithful to the Lord. That's just not what John is writing about. So why would he write about that here? I think that's far into the context. He's dealing with light and darkness. He's dealing with believers and unbelievers. And I think that's true here. So the point that John is making is that when Christ appears, all unsaved people are going to shrink away from him in shame as well as in terror because they will see so clearly that Christ is the righteous judge and that they are wicked sinners and so deserving of divine judgment. And this will include those who profess to believe in him, but they're not true believers. The Apostle John did a wonderful job, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of helping his readers understand that not everyone who appears on the outside to be saved really is saved, while at the same time we can test ourselves for the clear internal markings that identify us as genuine Christians. We're glad you could join us today for Verse by Verse. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more information about Lakeside, go to their website, lakesidechapel.com, or call 727-239-0306. Verse by Verse is a ministry of Lakeside, and you can learn more about us at our website, versebyverseradio.org. I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson. There was a popular question when I was a new believer many years ago that I don't hear very often these days. If you were charged with the crime of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? As I said a moment ago, some people look like Christians because they come to church every week and know all the church lingo. But there are evidences, if we pay attention, that will clue us in on the authenticity of not only our own Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.